Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A warm welcome to everybody to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Really excited for uh, today's conversation uh, with Chris Bloomstrand and Elliot Turner. Phil Ordway uh, is skipping this week. He'll be back next week. Chris, we're going to start with you. I know you wanted to talk about some recent headlines and uh, Nike, and then we'll move over to uh, Elliot, who um, has some interesting uh, things to say on Dropbox versus Slack. And I really look forward to the discussion. So, Chris, I'll turn it to you. Good. Thanks, John. Yeah, I, you know, we have a little position in Nike. I wish it were larger. It had been much larger, and I found the stock getting kind of expensive late last year, and we we trimmed it back materially. We've talked about portfolio management and position sizing and all that, and at a point, you know, Nike, in my opinion, is one of the very best businesses in the world. It's been one of the best businesses in the world for a long time, and it's something that, you know, I think the the growth curve despite the brand and the business being around for a long time, I think they've still got a lot of future in front of them to grow globally. Um, It's very much a global story. You know, they're dominant in their field, but price matters in our world and we had trimmed the stock way back. And so you got into 2020 and, you know, Nike, like, you know, most businesses were materially harmed in what would be their fourth quarter, but what would be kind of the, the second quarter for the rest of the world. They're on a, a May year end. And so that that quarter ended May, which ended their fiscal year was just brutal. Sales were down on the order of a third. You know, they lost money. They raised a little bit of debt capital uh, just to shore up and ensure they had cash on the balance sheet. But, you know, the, the, the premise in our case, going back to 2017 with Nike has been a transition of their business uh, away from traditional wholesale, if you will, to direct to consumer. And I've got a handful of companies in the portfolio that you'd put into that bucket. And, and you know, the, the theme is is prevalent. I've talked about Richemont and their ability to d- distribute and sell uh, and market, if you will, even very high-end jewelry brands and Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels, you know, their various watch brands. They have several online distribution platforms. They've got terrific website for each of their brands. You know, they've kind of bought and sold and incrementally bought now own entirely Uxnet Porte. They own WatchFinder. They've got a partnership with Alibaba where they sell on Tmall. And so, you know, in, in the jewelry and the watch world, which has just been crushed on the backs of the pandemic, which really does lean heavily on on-site retail. You know, you know, you could see the beginnings of their online strategy really starting to work. And, you know, I think long-term, it's viable distribution. It augments the the brands that they have, which are very high-end. You know, we own Disney, which the light went on for us when, when they announced they were going to take distribution away from Netflix and go over the top. 
And here in the pandemic, they like a lot of businesses have kind of pulled forward three or four, five years even of, of what was an evolutionary trend in changing distribution. And they've got, you know, 60 plus million already have signed up just in a few months for Disney Plus. It's incredible. I think about, you know, Geico, for example, inside of Berkshire, you know, they've, they've long been kind of a direct to consumer distribution. So it's this, it's this direct to consumer theme, but really in a place where you're changing the entire structure of distribution and, and the margins that go with them. And, you know, Disney, when they announced and, and really rolled out a multi-app, multi-digital distribution program, thought that by, you know, the very long term, they would be doing, you know, maybe, maybe 30% of their business in a digital direct-to-consumer format. And here they are in the pandemic, and just in the last year, they've gone from something like 20% of their revenues to 30% of their revenues sold digitally, and the margins that go with them. So this this quarter, I think, Elliot, you said you were going to look at their conference call and, and quarterly release, but it was really, really impressive. I mean, here we are still, we've got a large swath of the global economy, slow at least, and in a lot of places stopped. And in the last quarter, revenues for the business were only down 1%. They've got most of their stores back running, but they were not fully running for the entire quarter. Just the driver of this business, though, is is really shifting, you know, kind of intentionally away from wholesale and really what they call undifferentiated wholesale, which would be kind of internal sales, kind of the store within a store where they're selling at, you know, a Macy's or a Kohl's or a JCPenney as opposed to differentiated wholesale, which is a better business for them. And that's kind of your Foot Locker and your Dick's businesses. But sitting on top of that is the direct-to-the-consumer stores. You know, Nike has their own big branded stores in the major cities of the world, in the major countries of the world that drive a lot of business. They have factory stores, which on a per unit basis have very high returns. It allows them to kind of move second year merchandise. but what we've seen in the online sales, you know, you know, you think about Disney as an example, pulling content from Netflix, and that was multiple years worth of licensing to make that transition. Disney did not sell on Amazon for very long. They realized, oh, whoa, this is not just another distribution pipe. We're actually trying to distribute with with somebody that's going to wind up being a major major customer. So Disney or, or you know, Nike, if you will, pulled all of their sales, direct sales off of Amazon. You cannot go to amazon.com right now and buy direct sales from Nike. Uh, there are retailers, you know, third-party retailers that will still sell on the platform, but you cannot get the new merchandise. So, you know, Disney has just, or, or uh, Disney again, but, you know, Nike has, does, has done a marvelous job on their marketing, on building one of the most durable, recognizable brands, extant anywhere in the world. You know, they, they spend a whole bunch of money on marketing and, you know, a line item that they call demand creation expense, which is really the payment of, you know, big marketing dollars to high profile athletes and, and sports teams, really trying to drive that brand recognition. And with that, you know, if you look at the ability and, and the amount of money they've spent and the resources that have been, that have been spent in the last couple, three years, you know, driving robotics and automation cutting order cycles down, you know, the scale that you get from shipping from the store directly, uh, managing your inventory levels to where, you know, they're, they're, they're at the place now where they're 
leveraging data to personalize product offerings. They're managing inventory flow and driving down inventories, driving up turns, which all put it all together and it lowers customer acquisition cost. I mean, they, you know, their, their, their scale marketing is incredible. If you become a member on one of their apps and they're driving membership counts up, they're with all of their with all of their algorithms and their AI. They're just at the very beginning of the game. They're scratching the surface, if you will, of being able to digitally market personally to a customer. It's all just incredible. And so, you know, here you are with their digital empire growing at almost a hundred percent year over year type growth rates. Like I say, it's almost thirty percent of their business up from almost nothing just a few years ago. Uh, it's been an incredible story. So I thought, you know, anybody that wanted to go, you know, look at a business in terms of executing very changing distribution structures ought to take a look at Nike. Uh, you know, I think from a valuation standpoint, the problem I have with it is the stock is just way too damn expensive now. I think the world has figured out that the margin structure of this business is going up. I and mean, you've got a business that has done kind of mid-teen operating margins for a long time. EBITDA margins at kind of the you know, 15, 16, 17% level, net margins at 10 or 11. And when I think about, and, and Nike finally articulated the different differing margin structure between undifferentiated wholesale and what they're doing digitally, it's at least a 10-point gross margin difference. The ability to also drive down SG&A from scale also incredible. So, you know, if I, if I were, if I were a modeler, you know, I would take gross margins growing from mid forties to as much as 55 or 60% over time. I'd take the EBITDA margin. You can almost double it up to 30%. Net margins can go from 10 to 20. And the problem is though, the, the stock, which has just gone straight up recently, it was way up on the earnings release. You've now got a $200 billion market cap on a business doing kind of 40 billion in trailing sales that if I look out three or four years and grow the top line units and price combined at, you know, eight, nine, 10% a year, which I think is immensely doable. I think, again, I think the runway for growth is just very long. You've got a business that can, it's going to do 60, $65 billion and, you know, maybe $12 billion in free cash profit, which is just incredible. But you know, at $200 billion, what, if you're going to do 12 billion in profits, you're pushing almost 17 R-rated earnings, you know, on, on, on the current kind of normalized non-COVID earning picture, you know, the stock doing over 40 times, probably 45 times earnings. It's really interesting. You know, you think about, you know, I've talked about, and we're thinking a lot about where you can find businesses that can materially just kind of structurally change the way they distribute and cut out layers of cost and marketing. It can be done in places like very high-end wine. You know, we looked at Crimson Wine when it got spun out of Lucadia, talked about it at our roundtable. You know, in wine and, and liquor, really, it's, it's tough business in that you lean on classic distribution. If you're selling wine, for instance, in the individual states, you, you know, a lot of states you work off of a price list where you're selling a case of wine at the exact same price the wholesaler is now the distributor, they're selling wine at the exact same price to a restaurant as they would to a grocery store, regardless of the volume of your purchases. So, you know, for a $35 bottle of wine, the winemaker, the grower is netting very little once you get through all of the layers of distribution. And then you talk to the winemakers that have, you know, the big ornate tasting rooms in Napa or Sonoma that wind up with, with lists of, of customers that buy direct from the winery. 
And you think about the same kind of thing that can happen in like very high-end bourbon, for example, very small production bourbon. You know, the margin structure of those direct-to-consumer sales are just incredibly higher. And the problem you have is if you have enough production and volume and you're, and you're, and you're a winemaker, you, you can't sacrifice your classic distribution network because you have too much volume to move. And until you can grow your entire distribution list to your, your DTC customers, you don't want to piss off your distributors because they're not going to carry your brand. So it's a fine line. Some of the very high-end cult wines that don't have a lot of production, and you know, you're seeing this evolve to where even larger and larger production amounts, the majority of your sales come from DTC, they're done at high margins. But even there, you can't charge lower price. So you'd think, well, I'm a seller, I'll charge a lower price for my product, and you know, you know, I'll compete those customers way to my DTC. The problem is, again, like I say, the distributor is not going to carry your product if you're undercutting their price. So you have to be rational with your, with your distribution. You know, Nike's got the same thing. You know, I think about that wholesale distribution, you know, especially at the low end, the undifferentiated. Macy's is going to go away. JCPenney's has gone away. It's not very good business. So we're driving, you know, Nike is driving sales away from that channel. Their branded stores almost become billboards. You know, it's almost like Carvana's big tower. It's a billboard. I mean, they're very profitable. You know, they're, they're again, only in the major cities. You know, you know, I'll stop and, and, and let you guys chime in, but, you know, I'm so, so impressed with what we've seen. I think the success that Disney has had you know, in, in terms of this transition to digital has surprised even their management. You know, they've got a new CEO. You know, Phil Knight ran the business for years. You know, we, we like to talk about books that we love. Shoe Dog is arguably the best business biography that I've ever read. Uh, but Mark Parker did a great job with the business. So he kicked himself up to the CEO suite and they brought in Donahoe, John Donahoe, who had been at Service Now. So that's where uh, Slootman, who's now Snowflake, uh, had been. And so you think about a business that's really trying to focus on digital distribution, and they've got the right guy in place. Donahoe had been at eBay uh, for a bunch of years prior to, prior to being at, at, at Service Now. And so, you know, the team in place is terrific. You know, there's a lot not to like about comp. You know, they had to pay uh, Donahoe, a billion dollars. I'm kidding, but a whole bunch of money, something like $50 million to come in in year one. They paid their execs a big premium and comp um, because of the COVID, because they weren't going to hit their performance targets, which is fine. So, you know, it's it, it's a company that I think stands to be much, much, much bigger. And, you know, if you're an investor and you try to think about how you really make money, you, you got to get growth right. And I think it's easy. It's it's a lot easier. I found as an investor, it's a lot easier to go and figure out a place where uh, you know the price that you're paying, uh, the multiple is too low and stands to expand. It's really hard to find a business unless it's a new business where you really can drive up what has been a margin structure that's been pretty consistent over time, where you have a development and distribution where you can materially change the margin structure over time. That, that's hard to do and it's hard to identify. So again, I'm spending a lot of time on it. And you know, I think it's, it's, it's time well spent to try to think through which companies and which industries lend themselves to the ability to change margin structure over time. And you know, when you can find it, oftentimes you can get gems you know, kind of hiding in the rough. But uh, I thought it was worthy of talking this week only because the numbers were just so extraordinary and so far ahead of what the, the Wall Street sell side was looking for. So I'd be intrigued at, at what you guys think about the business and simply that whole you know, concept of kind of taking distribution in-house or 
you know, changing your distribution structure and, and, and trying to move product DTC, direct to consumer. Yeah, I mean, it's all so interesting. Uh, these are themes on a high level I've been thinking about a lot. And Nike is one of those companies, I gave it a deep look 2016 and 2017, and I never pulled the trigger and, you know, obviously feel terrible in hindsight, which is easy to do. Um, but, um, you know, I think I understood it well. You made an awesome point about this idea with, you know, it, it's really about DTC, not just digital, that like wholesale stores are these billboards for them and have an extremely important role to play. And I think it gets at uh, my single favorite line as I was reading through the earnings call. Um, and it goes, after all, we know a consumer who connects with us on two or more platforms has a lifetime value that's 4x higher than those who don't. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's not just about getting people to buy online and the better margin structure. It's about getting people to think about Nike anywhere, everywhere and engage with them more frequently. Like, that's awesome. And that's really interesting. Um, the growth in the commerce app in particular, 200% growth is just wild. You know, like people need shoes, I guess. And obviously, especially with kids going back to school, kids feet grow no matter what. Each year, you're going to be getting new shoes for them. And, you know, Nike's kind of tapped into that zeitgeist and they're... <laughs> They're, they're the you know place everyone's turning to. One of the things that I was thinking about like high level that I find especially interesting right now is these companies who are having success bridging a direct connection with their customers during COVID um, are going to have a virtuous cycle that will enable continued success from here. So Nike talked a lot about investing in their supply chain and logistics, creating efficiencies, uh, making it cheaper and getting stuff to customers faster. They talked about investing more in customer acquisition, right? Both these things, they're going to get more customers for cheaper than other people will. And they're going to be able to fulfill orders than cheaper than other people will. Um, so the experience is going to be better. The, the per unit profitability is going to be better. And it's going to fuel more investment in this sort of stuff. You know, we've invested in some companies that I think are kind of on the back end improving these kinds of experiences. We have a position in Cognex who uh, is doing amazing things in logistics with um, machine vision. Um, and they're making the processes a lot more efficient. I was trying to look to see, and it turns out that they've hired a decent amount of uh, sales reps in the area, though I know in logistics, they tend to use systems integrators. But I'm thinking, you know, someone like Cognex might be a key provider uh, in uh, building out those efficiencies. So I've been thinking about that. Um, interestingly, you mentioned uh, wine going DTC. Like my fascination that I spent a lot of time the last couple of months on is naked wines. And obviously, I had to shoot you an email while you're talking to remind me that we should talk about this industry because uh, I know you know a lot about wine. But you know, it's it, it's uh, all really, really relevant, really important right now. Um, these companies that are receiving these benefits, it's like. You know, a lot of people say, well, their comps are going to be tough next year. And that's definitely true for someone who's like selling a bicycle or something like that. But some of these companies that have more like repeatable behavior, these advantages are going to compound on one another. So, um, you know, it's hard to think about exactly what's the right price and a fair multiple for someone like Nike. Uh, but you talk about a company where you could see like with a with a high degree of confidence that they're not going anywhere in any forecastable time frame, like, you know, talking out decades. Um, that's one of those. And when the 10 years at, uh, you know, not much more than zero, uh, what, what's the right price? It's, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, how do you think about like whether to buy it or not at this juncture, or, you know, how do you think about sizing the position since you're already in it? Well, I have a hard time. In fact, I've got a handful of new clients where I haven't even bought Nike only because I've been selling Nike. I mean, I've got some clients institutionally that come in 
And, you know, we own the entire portfolio right out of the gate. They never want to have a dime of cash. And that's fine. And in those cases, I can undersize the position, you know, materially relative to what I'd call my model weight. You know, but for a new client that doesn't, that has a, a long horizon and really has no interest in trying to beat the market over a quarter or for a six month or a one year period of time, I just don't find Nike viable right now. I mean, at a $200 billion market cap, you know, it, it's just another one of these businesses where, you know, it, 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 it's a growth story. And anywhere you've got realistic, tangible growth, you know, the world is paying very fancy prices for those businesses. And, you know, the problem is when you've got a business growing 8% a year, even where the margin structures are going to grow, you know, kind of in the, in the teens for, you know, a fairly long time, which I think will be the case in Nike as they transition more and more of their business, DTC. I find it hard to pay $200 billion for a company that, you know, did $4 billion last year that, like I say, you know, really in the next five or six years stands to do, you know, three times that amount. You're already paying 17 times for it. So the only way I can get there is, you know, to get to this new era thinking of how do we discount prices at interest rates at the zero bound. And, you know, maybe, maybe those businesses that really can grow in a world where nominal output isn't going to grow very fast, maybe they are worth the premium. But when I start paying 50 times earnings and I've got a 2% earnings yield, I'm not getting that much more. And the problem is, when these businesses miss, and they all miss for whatever reason, I mean, Nike, you talked about not getting it in 16, 17. We did. But at that time, Adidas had really closed the gap on them and had spent a lot of money on their own demand creation expense. And they were picking up athletes and they were picking up teams. And Nike seemingly had lost their way a little bit. And, you know, that that's, that's a line item that you never want to see go down because brand here is so important. You think about just a, any company in any industry and their ability to transition classic distribution to DTC. To me, you've got to have brand. You've got to have brand recognition. And again, Nike is one of the most valuable, recognized brands in the world, but price matters. And so I struggle with it, Elliot. I mean, uh, you know, we've made enough money. I've scaled the position back in size from a portfolio management standpoint. So this big run-up here in the last couple, three months has been with too little of our capital. I didn't buy enough when the stock had dropped big time during the COVID. And so, you know, really for me to make Nike material position, I'm not going to be able to make it bigger if they continue to execute on all fronts and the world rewards them for execution. At some point, price matters. And, you know, a stock that's traded between 18 or 19 to earnings and 25 to earnings for the better part of the last two decades to me, even in a low interest rate environment is not worth pushing 50 times. Um, so I need to get it at a lower price. And, you know, fortunately, most of our clients have enough patience and I've got plenty of other things to do in the portfolio from an opportunity cost standpoint to put money to work with what I think is a better prospective return than Nike. But that said, you know, I scroll up and down the list of companies that I own and I don't have many businesses that are better than Nike itself. And so, you know, I go back to that whole Lou Simpson concept of, of having learned my lesson over the years and entirely having sold a stock. You know, for price reasons, I would have been completely out of Nike. And I'm not. As it is, it's, you know, pushing 1% of our capital across the board because I don't want to be out of this company for the next 20 or 30 years. Once you're out, it gets a lot harder to come back in. And it's a lot easier for me, 
you know, if you get an overall market sell-off or, you know, they miss on growth in China or they miss on growth in Europe or whatever comes down the pike, you're going to get a better stab at Nike than you are at 45 times trailing and 17 times kind of my best case number five years out. Yeah, that's so true. And those are really the hardest decisions to make when you're managing separate accounts. I mean, you know, there's some people who like to assert that there's no such thing as a hold in the business, that everything's a buy or sell. But I really do fundamentally believe there's that middle ground where, you know, especially, well, really uniquely when you have a good basis in something um, and their tax considerations, and you also, you know, really believe in the business longer term, just don't like the price today, you know, you very much end up with a hold. It's interesting to think about, you know, uh, Donahoe coming into um, Nike. I had experience with him. I bought into eBay, like on the impending PayPal split way back when. And, you know, there were some good and bad things I could say about him. But one of the things I, I enjoyed reading this particular call or I found interesting was his introduction of the technology lexicon to Nike and thinking a little differently and trying to talk about lifetime value and where they see it and how it happens and what they could do to drive it. And, you know, I think that different perspective is probably very timely, um, you know, coincidental, but also timely. It's it's really um, fortunate to have someone who's thinking and, and looking a little differently there. I've been more recently thinking a lot about the apparel opportunity in general, spending some time on various like digital first apparel driven companies. I uniformly hate apparel for investment opportunities. It's one of the areas when you talked about no a couple of weeks ago, I probably should have jumped at and said first and foremost, anything fashion sensitive. But like in general, I think there's a really big uh, chance for people to kind of sift through the clutter of the e-com world and Uh, give shortcuts to customers to know what does and doesn't work for them. So whether it be pure curation or where Nike, it's like a brand and it's the buying experience of knowing your size and being able to then comfortably without trying on the shoe, know what's going to fit and what works for you and all that. It's like the ultimate shortcut. Once you buy online with Nike, uh, you know, it's hard to think about getting sneakers elsewhere. So it, it would be like, uh, putting some tech in- investors in the framework of thinking about this as an LTV play could could do weird things. But, you know, I, f- I feel like some of the pieces are there. I feel like the pieces are there to kind of declutter the consumer experience in general by having uh, people buy into that framework here. Yeah, it's still, I mean, Nike's two-thirds shoes and one-third apparel. And when it comes to apparel, they just knock the cover off the ball. Under Armour came at them hard for a long time. And for a long time, it was a growth darling. But Under Armour had the exact opposite mix of, of shoes and apparel. They were, they were a lot heavier in apparel, which is hard. And they never had the resources. Under Armour never generated the profitability to really be able to spend and capture you know, the high-end athlete in the team market the way Nike has. Adidas is, has ramped up their efforts here mightily. But again, Adidas is way behind on, on digital and DTC. You're dead right on Donahoe coming in. They, you know, they talk about their new regional service center in LA using predictive modeling uh, where they can anticipate customer demand and ensure one to two day delivery. I mean, that, you know, that gets right into the Amazon world. And in doing that, again, you can drive down working capital. You can drive down inventory. There's just a lot that they've done. And, and, and they've done it over the years. I mean, you go and kind of follow the evolution of Nike and, and how, they, how they moved manufacturing around in Asia, uh, 
it's just, it just a great story. It, it, the business was so profitable. Again, I, everybody ought to read Shoe Dog. It's, again, the best book. I mean, amen to that. Nike struggled with access to capital because their traditional bank lenders couldn't get their mind around a company that never had any cash. And how could you be as profitable on a unit economics basis as you are, never have cash? Well, they didn't understand that all of that cash was being driven into the growth of the business. And it was being done at incredibly high returns. And they finally wound up with a lending partner that got it and became a great partner. But Nike was close to failing many, many times, you know, albeit with great economics. I, you know, everything they've done, they've done well. Um, I, it's funny you mentioned the, the funniest line. And I'd be curious if you guys know what the hell this is. But I laughed out loud and I had to go look it up. What is, I'm going to ask you guys, what is Cactus Jack? Because it was mentioned in the very first question of the Q&A. John, you <laughs> probably wouldn't know. I'm sure you wouldn't no know idea. In, in Zurich. But Elliot, have you ever heard yeah, of Yeah, no clue. Yeah, the, the, the very first question in the Q&A, which was the, the follow-on question from the first sell-side analyst guy, asked him if, if they've considered partnering with McDonald's on the cactus on cactus jack and if somebody orders a happy meal would they throw on a pair of shoes and i think it was donahoe or the cfo answered uh i can answer that in one word no and there's very little that happens on a conference call where i don't know the lexicon or i'm not familiar with what, what the heck they're doing and i'd never heard of cactus jack and i'm still not even sure i know what it is but i think they've got i think mcdonald's has a wrapper that's sponsoring you know, a Cactus Jack themed meal and they've got some different kind of a, a burger in there than the, than the traditional burger. Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pop culture, I, not I, my I, strong suit. I usually, I usually read transcripts and don't listen to as many analyst calls and, and, and quarterly calls anymore, but it's one I'm going to go back and a lot of times I need to go back and listen to the nuance of what was said because I want to hear the way management actually answered a question. But in this case, I presume there's going to be a lot of laughter because I'd never heard Cactus Jack on a on, on a quarterly call. <laughs> yeah, no. And you know, it, uh, it, my mind wants to go in a couple of places. First, you would have seen me vis- visibly cringe when you mentioned Under Armour, because that was one of my more painful, worst uh, investment mistakes in the last five years. Um, it could have been worse. Uh, turn and change my mind pretty fast. But man, yeah, you're so right on uh, how they came at Nike in apparel. And really, you know, I think the growth stopped even before it seemingly stopped to the street. They were just stuffing the channel and then um, everything fell apart from there. The other direction I would go with it is um, what you've said, Shoe Dog is just really amazing. What, I, I, I think it's one of the best uh, business biographies I've ever read. One of the thoughts though is, you know, last week we talked about the golden, uh, is, you know, Phil's conversation about is this a golden age of fraud? And it's interesting to think about like where the line's drawn between the fake it till you make it culture, like what's good and what's bad. And you know, there definitely was a degree of uh, fake it till you make it from night before they really um, kind of achieved what I'd call escape velocity and just were a pure gem. But, you know, fast forward to now, it's basically, you know, one of the most perfect companies out there in so many respects, um, do everything right. And, you know, they've had some challenges along the way too, um, where people, you know, didn't like exactly what they were doing with their supply chain. Um, and their and their labor force, but like they've really pushed through everything and kind of have this sterling image everywhere. The history with Michael Jordan, all that sort of stuff, just you know, fascinating. Well, the Jordan <laughs> brand, know the I mean, cat- you know, you know the fact that the fact that the the Jordan brand is still as big as it is, it's still still one of Nike's top sellers. I mean, you talk, you, know, you go back to apparel. If 
if I was Lululemon, I'd be really nervous because this this COVID, again, has accelerated so many trends. But now that you've got people working at home, the demand for leisure wear is up. I think there's an increase in fitness and people are out running and playing tennis and jogging. And I see a lot more people when I'm ever out late in the day at the golf course. I mean, they tell me that the, the, the number of rounds that are being played at my club are way off the charts higher because there's nothing else to do. And they're coming, they're coming at, they're coming at that, that yoga pant world. And really they've done a nice job in their ladies apparel lines. Um, you, know, you think about, you mentioned Jordan. I mean, you know, he was so monumentally instrumental to the, the development of, of Nike and, and the image and the brand. You know, Kobe is such a great loss and, you know, such a heartbreaking loss to the world, to his family, to the basketball world, but really to Nike. I mean, he was, he was a guy that spent, I don't know if you, if you guys knew this, but he would spend large parts of the summer in China teaching mm-hmm. the Chinese about the game of basketball. And for that kind of indirectly, you know, growing the Nike brand. And, you know, Kobe would get involved in the most minor details of uh, the development of various shoe lines and certainly of the Kobe line. So, you know, you know they, 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 they partner with, you know, great athletes, but also those that have a high degree of affection for the brand. And you just don't see that uh, elsewhere in, in shoes or in retail. And when you've got it, you've created something wonderful. And that's, that's where I go back to that demand creation expense, which are incredibly large numbers. You never want to see that number go down because it would be very easy to neglect your brand. And you've seen it in places like processed foods, Kraft, for example. I mean, you know, companies that, that tried to, to squeeze cost out of the equation and you know, kind of grow by shrinking at, at a point neglected their brand and it became very easy for private label to come in and disrupt you. It's become very easy for Amazon to come in and disrupt you. And again, I think the decision to keep your product off of the Amazon distribution channel when it would have been so easy to increase your sales incrementally was just a stroke of genius. So I'm perpetually impressed by these people running the business and, you know, hats off to them for navigating the, this transition to DTC. And like I say, the, the the pulling forward by three or five years in various places is remarkable. It's going to be interesting to see how durable it is for a lot of businesses that look a lot better today because of the COVID versus those that are a lot more harmed and, you know, who's taking appropriate action. I'd keep my eye on Adidas because, again, they're four or five years behind Nike in the transition to, to digital. But if there's another company that's going to get there, they're probably going to get there. And again, that's another place you talk about, you know, whether you would buy it and pricing and all that. I mean, it's, it's 50 plus billion dollar market cap and, you know, doing a couple billion dollars in, in, in profit in euros. And so it's mid 20. So it's, you know, half the multiple of a Nike, but you know, you take the margin structure, which didn't look too different than Nike's. And if, if Adidas gets it right and they make their own transition to DTC, you know, you can bake it. You can bake in the assumption that you know they're even though they're a few years behind, they drive that gross margin up by ten. They double that EBITDA margin from fifteen or so to whatever twenty five thirty. The net margin goes from eight or nine up to, I don't know, mid to high teens. And all of a sudden, you know, it's not a twenty six multiple. It's really a mid teens multiple. And if that's a business that can grow in line with Nike's eight or nine or ten percent top line growth, you know, a company like Adidas, despite the fact that the stock has done so well, could be a steal. Um, you know, I hate to give away ideas that we're thinking about, but you know, I think I think that's the way you need to be thinking in this world that's so disruptive. You know, my my career is one that in the first 10, 15 years, disruption happens slow. And in the last 10 or 15 years, 
man, it's happened fast. And, you know, COVID's accelerated things, but, you know, there are opportunities if you can figure out really where you've got the ability to permanently and for the better change a margin structure. So I, I just thought Nike would be fun to talk about as a case study of, you know, you just look at the thing and go, wow, wow, wow. This, what, what, what they've managed to do during a really brutally difficult period has been really impressive. Yeah, totally. It gets back to that quote I introduced from Nick Sleep in the, I think it was our second uh, podcast. Like you get consumers comfortable with these changes and my God, do they change everything fast. And I do get this sense and feeling from people around me that people like and want to engage directly with the brands they want. They don't want to be intermediated by Amazon itself either. So not just did Nike make the right move, but I think consumers also you know, have gotten more comfortable knowing that the supply chains are there in the companies they want to engage with, that they could buy directly from them and get it. Like Amazon was a shortcut in the past, but I don't think that's going to be the case down the line. Um, that's a big change in behavior. I think it's something that I've you know heard from PayPal uh, in various different ways. If you saw my wife's shopping habits going from an office every day to uh, home every day, I think you wouldn't be too concerned about Lululemon. Like, uh, and, you know, think the same thing going to a daycare drop off. It's amazing how much people have changed, you know, what they're content to look like, uh, you know, every morning and afternoon. Um, so, you know, I definitely think that that's there, there's room for all of them to be okay there. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm with you on these changes, thinking about them and and seeing and observing and you know, uh, respecting the companies who are taking the initiative and trying to kind of lean into the situation and accelerate what they do well. I wonder, I guess, two things that I wonder that I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Um, on the one hand, with someone like Adidas, right? Um, their brand just you know, they, they've had a great run on the heels of one, you know, really strong celebrity driving things to an extent, but like, you know, do they have the kind of brand with the same potential to go direct to customer as, um, as Nike does? And then the other thing is like, we spoke about Starbucks two weeks ago, both Starbucks and Nike are heavily reliant on China for sales and growth. How do you handicap that risk with what's going on in the world in general? Those are two things that, that I'd wonder your thoughts on. Well, the, I mean, just specifically on the Starbucks, the growth curve at Starbucks in China is so important that without it, it becomes a completely different story. You know, right now, I, I think China is about not even quite 20% of their total revenues growing fast. But Nike's a place where they're growing fast throughout the entire world. They're still growing fast in North America. They're still growing fast in Asia Pacific, they're still growing fast in Europe. They're driving digital all over the globe. In fact, they're really ahead globally in digital, far more so than they are in, in North America and the United States. It's, you know, diff- retail here is a lot more differentiated. Uh, but Adidas is big enough and the management team in place there is good enough that, you know, they're doing you know, mid-20s billions in sales. They're, they're a big company. Uh, you know, they have they absolutely have the resources to go do it. Like I say, they're just behind. I mean, Nike was so prescient and saw when they introduced their app how much more profitable that business has been. Like I say, they've, they've surprised themselves with the rapidity. So you know, I guarantee you that Adidas is, is, is loading up the gun to go try to do the same thing. And you know they're behind Nike, but if there was another company that I thought could do it well, they would do it well. But then you kind of think through beyond these big behemoth brands, right? Nike and Adidas. 
and you look at a company like Shopify that you guys would know better than I do, but you know, I think there's pushback in distribution in the Amazon channel, and there's pushback in in being forced into you know the 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 Apple App Store and you know completely moving a distribution line to direct is hard. You've got to get payment right. You've got to get delivery and, and distribution right. There's a lot of moving parts to it. And you've got to have scale. You've got to be big to do it. And again, they're just not, they're not brands and they're not products that are really going to be able to pull it off. Even if you've got great brand recognition, you know, beer is not going to be sold directly to the home. Coca-Cola is not going to be sold directly to the home. You're, you're going to buy that in a basket of merchandise and you're going to get it at Amazon. But in places where you're willing to spend on brand and make the investment in, in distribution infrastructure and digital, you know, go get them. But, you know, it's just a lot of nuances. Again, the investments in RFID, for example, at Nike are just are staggeringly large. But when you can, you can manage your inventory better for doing so, when you can cut your order cycle by half with investments in robotics and automation, and there are a lot of things that, that Amazon has done in terms of their network and distribution that Nike is emulating, but it's, you know, done, done at scale. It's, it's just a massive thing. It's going to be interesting to watch. And, you know, I think, you know, having seen the management just say and change their long-term target for DTC sales from 30% to 50%. If I was a betting man, I, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 or 15 years from now, you know, two thirds of their business is, is DTC and, you know, trying to figure out those places I said earlier where, where, where companies can follow down this path and that are willing to have to make that kind of an investment can really pay off. But again, you've, you've got to be cognizant of your traditional distribution. You know, Disney, for example, has to be cognizant of the cord, you know, despite the fact that it's being cut everywhere. And I think it, just an offhanded comment. I think if, if Disney can figure out the technology or somebody can figure out the technology to stream live sports online, that would be the death of cable. Um, cause I, you know, to me, I'm never going to get rid of the cable line. Uh, and I know I'm talking about, Di- about Nike, but you know, I go back to, I go back to Disney. I will always have direct TV or I'll have a cable subscription to be able to stream in live sports. I think the technology to do that well. Maybe well, the technology is there. It's not a technological hurdle. It's because of how the, uh, leagues and teams, depending on which mm-hmm. sport you're speaking to have sold their, uh, broadcast rights. So that's one of the big things with Roku's uh, fight with NBC that resolved this week. NBC's Anywhere apps were going to be pulled from Roku. And it would have especially hurt me because I I gave up my... I I was going to cut the cord and go to YouTube TV, but my uh, cable company made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so what I did to kind of shave extra money off was I returned all my cable boxes and I watched TV through... Uh, the actual channel apps on Roku. So if NBC had pulled, I wouldn't have been, I would have been at risk of not being able to watch an Islanders uh, game seven had we gone there with Tampa. Sorry, I'm still sore about this loss. Um, I know, I know you might be too. So, um, you know, so it's not a technological problem. I think we're really close though. I think we're on the precipice of everything being available uh, through stream. And I think the cable companies themselves are getting a little more agnostic toward it just knowing that uh, if they work with uh, the Roku's of the world, they could get some of the data, they could get, you know, a decent piece of the advertising pie even still. So, you know, it's just a matter of time, a matter of shaking these things out. And I I do think that's another area where like COVID greatly accelerated the pathway to 
you know, going from a, a, a kind of epic of friction to the, the new world order. Yeah, no doubt. You know, that the BAM tech investment that um, Disney made with, with baseball went a long way to solving some of that technology. Big time, big time. I knew some people that worked there. I was really hoping that we get an opportunity for a BAM Tech IPO one day, and I loved to see Disney pick that up. Uh, I thought that was that was one of the things that made me excited that Disney was truly going all in on 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 streaming, and I thought that was really helpful. John, what are your thoughts on on kind of Adidas versus Nike? You know, given that you're sitting across the pond from us. Well, in terms of Adidas versus Nike, I think they have similar stature over here in Europe. I mean, my son has me shopping for stuff on both uh, websites, uh, DTC, um, you know, pretty much equally. You know, sometimes he likes something on Adidas better, sometimes on, on Nike. So I'd say in Europe, uh, they they enjoy pretty similar stature, maybe also because um, soccer is just a bigger sport over here. So you don't have that dominance that Nike has uh, kind of in basketball that doesn't really carry over. But they're definitely the, the big two, and uh, they dominate the market for sure. Hey, Chris, I, I was just curious. Um, you know, you mentioned beer and Coca-Cola there, and, and kind of the distinction there is obviously DTC. Uh, but I'm wondering just if, if you see if there's any possible analogies here. You know, you had Coca-Cola in its heyday. Um, they were kind of, in terms of the product, you know, what's similar with, with a Coca-Cola or beer or shoes is that the product itself is not that hard to replicate. But it's kind of with Coca-Cola, they had the scale in distribution, in advertising, they had the mind share, they were huge sponsors of sports. And um, you know, whether there's any possible analogy in terms of how Coca-Cola didn't really continue to grow at that clip that, you know, it seemed like it could continue to grow at when they really dominated Mindshare and whether, you know, the DTC distinction is enough to potentially offset, you know, something similar happening uh, with Nike or Adidas going forward. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't think what Coca-Cola or PepsiCo or AB InBev manufactured lends itself to DTC distribution. I mean, at some point, the channel becomes really hard. You don't want to you don't want to replicate your shopping experience of going to the grocery store and having to go to 98 different sites to get a head of lettuce and to get you know a case of Coca-Cola or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure Coke even, you know, to your to your second point, I'm not even sure they lost their way. They're just sugary, sugary soft drinks lost a lot of their appeal. And, you know, for that, they did all the right things. You know, they diversified brand into all the various beverages that they're in. They diversified into bottled water. PepsiCo's done the same thing. You know, the advantage I think PepsiCo has is, yeah, I think with their salty snack business, which is a much better business than the soft drink business in terms of economics and in terms of growth prospects, PepsiCo is probably today a better business. But now, I, I, John, I don't, I don't see how a Coca-Cola could fix their their current problems by, you know, trying to create a member app <laughs> to buy your soda. Maybe you can. I mean, I'm I'm sure they've, I'm sure they've bannered it around in Atlanta. It's 
it just you know to, to thrive to me in DTC you've got to you've got to exist at the very high end of brand and mindshare. That's why in my wine example, I'm not sure a large scale producer like a Robert Mondavi or you know the brands inside of Constellation necessarily lend themselves to you know DTC sales. Again, you know with traditional distribution, you know where the distributor's got to get paid. Uh, and you've got to get the product onto the shelves of the stores and onto the wine list at the restaurant and onto the shelves of the grocery store. It's just hard. I mean, it, it works if the majority of your buyers or all of your buyers are willing to buy from you direct. And, you know, that that transition from traditional to direct is is a tough nut. We're trying to think about it a lot here and, you know, trying to find places that can get it. You know, that's why an Adidas kind of following in the footsteps of Nike is there. But in my mind, if I'm out looking for golf shoes or running shoes, although I don't run anymore, I I can still buy, you know, name brand, top line, new release Adidas at Amazon. I may be mistaken, but I know you cannot buy uh, first run merchandise from Nike. You've got to go. And Nike's just done such a great job creating, you know, special edition shoes, new releases to sold to a limited clientele. It's just incredible, you know their their ability to connect customers on two or more of their platforms, you know, in the store, on one of the apps. They say if you can connect on two or more platforms, that increases your lifetime value by four x. I don't know how Coca Cola could do something like that. I mean, it works to me in shoes, and it works in shoes when you're selling you know merchandise for a hundred bucks a pair, two hundred bucks a pair. It works at Richemont in jewelry. I mean, at some level you know, shopping habits will change. And, you know, if we're, if we're locked down in the COVID and somebody wants to go buy a $40,000 watch or a piece of jewelry, you can do that now online. And you couldn't, you could not have done that, you know, seven or eight years ago in the case of Richemont's brands. And so, you know, they're all trying to figure it out. Um, you know, trying to get to the ones that, that can pull it off and that have the resources to do it with infrastructure and, and do it on a scale basis. That's a whole nother animal. All right, great. Well, uh, let's uh, move on to our second topic today. Elliot, I know you um, wanted to uh, talk about the dichotomy between Dropbox and uh, what, what's the other company? Slack. Slack and, uh, you know, kind of use it to illustrate some broader points. So go ahead. Yeah, so this is something I've been thinking about a lot in the market. And I'm not sure how persistent this is across time, but I'm seeing it more and more right now. Um, I don't necessarily want to get into each company specifically and talk about them. If you want to hear my thoughts on Dropbox, I spoke about it on Andrew Walker's podcast, yet another value podcast. And I did a Periscope with non-gap through that you can find either through Twitter uh, or Periscope itself, you know, kind of go deep on Dropbox itself. But like I wrote my commentary for year end 2019 about this phenomenon where um, if you are a really strong grower, so talk 25% top line or more, or if you have like really good persistent cash flows, you're getting uh, great multiples in the market. But if you're stuck in between, where you're like a mid-teens grower with um, decent free cash flow but not you know massive amounts, um, you're you're being neglected by the market. Um, and I think Slack versus Dropbox kind of highlights this phenomenon really well. Um, so Slack today is at exactly, roughly, uh, the revenue run rate of Dropbox four to four and a half years ago. 
when Dropbox was similarly growing 40% year over year, same growth rates that Slack is putting up today, even though Slack, I mean, obviously benefiting a bit from the COVID tailwind, they're very similar growth rates uh, when they were at the same points in scale. In many respects, Slack looks like Dropbox of that time. Uh, meanwhile, today, right, Dropbox is over double the scale on revenues, yet Slack is worth you know, $14.5 billion in enterprise value versus Dropbox at under $7 billion in, in enterprise value. So you're talking about a company with over twice, uh, twice the valuation that the market's giving it, even though it's half the revenue run rate. And, you know, let's leave aside the fact that Dropbox actually generates for, uh, free cash flow versus Slack. Not really there yet. Uh, or, you know, flirting with the, the break-even line. Um, and if you look at the growth expectation for next year for Slack, uh, the consensus expects 28% growth for Slack when Dropbox at the same time put up 31% growth. So talking, you know, three years ago for Dropbox. Um, it won't be until 2024 to 2025 that Slack gets to Dropbox's today revenue run rate if they hit consensus. And that presumes growth hanging at around 30% instead of decelerating further. Um, for 2020, if you think about the two companies, Slack will generate $240 million of top-line growth, like the gross volume of new revenue that they're going to achieve. Um, Dropbox is going to generate the exact amount of gross volume of growth. But you know, when you apply their relative, their respective multiples, that growth is worth uh, over $4 billion for Slack, while it's worth under $1 billion for Dropbox. Um, so I get it's hard to like truly have this conversation without digging into the respective qualitative merits and quantitative merits of each of these businesses. Um, but, you know, in a lot of senses, they're really similar. And I think it gets at two things in particular that the market is really um, not, one, on the one hand, is very sanguine on, and on the other hand, is not really thinking enough about. Um, so it's far easier today to contemplate a rosy future when the company is small and growing fast than the company is than when the company is larger and growing a little slower. So, like I said, the absolute dollar volume of growth is exactly the same for these two companies, but it's worth far more to the company who's much smaller. Um, and I think that's you know a pretty big mistake by the market. I don't think that's necessarily the right way to think about it. But you know, there's something to be said about having an open-ended opportunity for the imagination to run wild about where things might be down the line, as opposed to understanding a business from the perspective of having achieved a lot of its potential and having to be a little different from today to tomorrow. Um, and then the second big point, I think, is that the larger you get when you're this kind of business, like a B2B business, uh, and there's an element of uh, not necessarily B2B, but leave that aside. Um, the larger you get, the more your TAM intersects with someone else's. So like a lot of these companies talk about having a really large addressable market, and that's really you know potentially true. But when you're small and you're growing and creating a niche, that's you know very nice. You're not necessarily competing with other people. You're creating a market. And then when you prove and validate it, um, the bigger you get, the more your TAM intersects with someone else's. Um, so, you know, for Dropbox, they had to start dealing with OneDrive from Microsoft and Google Drive and Box came along. And so competition got a little more intense. And yet it really took uh, a good, you know, handful of years for that to start impinging on their ability to grow. And even still, they're growing quite nicely. Um, but if you look at Slack today, now they're really hitting problems where Microsoft Teams, you know, a couple of years ago wasn't necessarily an issue, but now it really is. Um, companies are already buying Microsoft uh, suite of 
uh, office suite. So might as well slap on teams. And, you know, I know the decision's not always that easy and there's room for Slack to compete. Um, but you know, when you're smaller, you don't necessarily think about those things. Um, so, you know, and then there's discord, which is taking some of the more social use cases from Slack. Um, and then Dropbox itself and Zoom are building more collaborative workflows. So, you know, that's that's what I'm thinking about. The two big points to sum up are that it's far easier to contemplate a rosy future when you're small and growing fast, and that the bigger you get, the more your TAM collides with others. And, you know, I'm wondering, Chris, if you see these uh, phenomenon elsewhere in the markets where, like, you know, growth at all costs is kind of getting disproportionately uh, rewarded compared to others. And if there have been other market regimes that are similar to this, and you know how you think about these these uh, contrasts, you know, if if I have a, a genuine weakness, and I've got plenty of weaknesses in investing, technology and, and software in specific is is one. You know, and, and you mentioned what I would step back and think the real risk would be, and maybe in a granular sense, it, it's not the case at a Slack or a Dropbox or a Zoom. But you hit the nail on the head. If, if, if you're sitting there paying licensing for, to Microsoft and you've now got OneDrive and Teams, if you talk to folks that actually you know, use and lean heavy on Slack or lean heavy on Dropbox, I, I, I think they've got features and advantages where those are attractive products. But to me, how can you confidently look out 10 years and assume that Microsoft won't dedicate the resources to kill you? I mean there's a veritable graveyard of businesses that Microsoft has killed. There's a veritable graveyard of companies that Google has killed and Apple has killed. I mean, you go back to, you know, when I was coming out of school and, you know, I was using WordPerfect. MS Word was garbage. And at the point where you were kind of, you know, you, you, were, you, you had to be pulled into the Microsoft operating system you know, they made it very cumbersome to load WordPerfect. You know, it wasn't as easy as leaving your machine on overnight and getting automatic updates. Updates were clunky. They, they sent you disks and, and software. I mean, I was a Lotus 1, 2, 3 WordPerfect guy. And at the point where they essentially forced you into their, into their architecture, they even had tabs at the top of each of those tools that allowed you to use the WordPerfect and the Lotus 1, 2, 3 templates. And eventually, they just killed it, and you forced, your, you forced yourself to use the new product. I mean, you think about Netscape when, you know, you had the big lawsuit. You know, Microsoft was pre-installing Internet Explorer. And, you know, at a point, you can go download Netscape, but it was really cumbersome. And at the point where you had the next upgrade cycle, they really weren't supporting Netscape. And, you know, they functionally killed it. And it's interesting to come full circle. And now you've got really, I mean, everybody using Chrome and Firefox. So did they win there? But, you know, it's it's... How do you beat the the 800-pound gorilla when that gorilla might come at you and spend a bunch of money on R&D and improve teams? Um, it w- w- would be my first real question, Elliot. Yeah, well, I think there's something to be said about having an essence and dedicating your entire organization toward it so you can invest in different elements of what makes that business work versus uh, the... Uh, Microsofts of the world who have a lot of things going on and they're focused on much broader initiatives. Um, And I do think that these companies in particular both have achieved a degree of scale where they have some persistence and they have a relationship with their customers and are embedded in workflows such that it's really hard to kind of rip out. 
And then it's also, I mean, I think neither is all that expensive to the point where, you know, it's it's not cost alone that drives the decision. But I, I, I really obsess over the the degree to which the market like disproportionately rewards open-ended growth versus, um, you know, more like mature growth. And, you know, it's just so hard to wrap my head around how how that sort of happens here. I think more recently, though, you know, to, to your question, though, I, I really do think um, Mario Sabelli has said it well. He's, he's pointed out that these companies that are like small and focused are, are, are beating the, the large and, you know, have their tentacles everywhere. And, I, you know, I, I, I do buy that thesis. I think these are good fertile grounds to hunt when people get overly concerned about, you know, the big guys stepping on their toes. Um, I, and, and, you know, now so more than ever, I think there's room for a little bit of it all to kind of coexist across the ecosystem, but it's definitely something I, where I think it really comes into the investment picture is thinking about TAM. And it's something I've observed a lot as I've looked at various SaaS companies, you know, have one or two investments over time that are there in that space. These companies love pointing you to really, really large market opportunities, really open-ended, uh, opportunities, but like, it's not that simple because the bigger you get, the more you do have to think about where and how you compete with these guys. And, um, you know, what looks like a really large TAM when you're small, kind of the walls start closing in around you. So, you know, I'm kind of arguing that the vice never closes to the full extent, but it, it closes to the extent that it kind of narrows the, your opportunity to, growth and, to grow and you have to start thinking differently. So one of the things I respect and like about Dropbox is they acquired HelloSign and they're integrating that into their product. The integration's done and they have this opportunity to start cross-selling it. And you start getting higher attach rate with something like HelloSign on top of core Dropbox, you get much higher ARPUs, but you also get lower churn. Like the likelihood when you have two uh, products from one company to churn off is, is, is just that much lower. Um, so, you know, I think Slack will have similar such opportunities, um, not necessarily trying to hone in on on the merits of each in in their fields but you know that's one of the things that i i feel like these two i i could pick other examples where it's happening across the market where the company that's growing well with free cash flow margins isn't gaudy isn't pretty and is worth a lot less than the you know equivalents um i think i guess you know have to be looking a lot more in the tech space to start finding these kinds of things but there are a lot of them out there you know, in the case of teams, you know, for those that, that really lean on it, and I've been on a million calls here in the last six months, video calls even, by invitation to be on Zoom calls, if I'm hosting a call, we have all the Microsoft licenses and my tech guys tell me that even Zoom is, is a fairly insecure platform. I've, I've, heard thing, I've heard, you know, data points to the contrary. But, you know, leaning, leaning heavily on it, and those that really do lean on teams have noticed in the last four or five months, once you really had the COVID, that Microsoft has made material improvements there. I guess in case of Slack, do you think, and, and I don't know how well you know the product, but do you, do you think, you know, businesses would abandon email entirely in favor of Slack? And if so, you know, if they're winning organizations and, and they're signing contracts, and I don't know, Slack's going to do a billion dollars in revenues this year, so they are winning business. Have they proven in the field capabilities versus things like chat? Because I think, as I understand it, chat is really the place where they've got an advantage so far. 
Yeah, that would be my big concern about them. Like chat apps tend to be a dime a dozen and churn far quicker than true workflow apps. Like chat is something that's somewhat fickle and situational. And, you know, I mean, I felt at one point somewhat tied to Bloomberg because of the chat function in there, the IB. And I moved a lot of those chats actually now that I've given up Bloomberg to WhatsApp and I haven't lost anything. Like when you have a reason to converse, you could always find something else, uh, some other platform to speak on. Um, so that's definitely, I, I'm not quite as sanguine on on Slack long-term uh, in that sense. Though I do think, I, I to your question on email, I don't think people are going to leave email. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which I find kind of funny, and I, I think about a lot with respect to Twitter because I really want them to have Substack as a piece of it. But like, Historically, you know, I used RSS. RSS was how I aggregated everything I read. Um, when Google killed Reader is actually what prompted me to um, use my idled Twitter account that I hadn't used at that point. I think this was somewhere around early 2012, maybe 2011, something like that. Could be 2010, somewhere in that in, in that two-year window. And, you know, every, the, the argument was that, like, no one needed something like this. No one needed to aggregate. People didn't want that. At the same time, people were talking about the death of email in general, that people's inboxes were too crowded and that people didn't want to engage in anything on email. Um, people still talk about email. I hear a lot about these email efficiency apps and, you know, everyone's got their favorite uh, version of it. And yet here we are where, like, Substack is just this emergent phenomenon and everyone's signing up to not read blogs on the internet, not read blogs through RSS, but get them emailed to you. Like what's the difference between a Substack and a blog? There definitely is none. Um, so, you know, every time I hear that email is going to die, there's a new, new case for like why it's just as relevant as it ever was. Um, you mentioned Zoom and Zoom's one that I think about a lot. Like I can't imagine if, if you didn't pay to subscribe to Zoom in the last two quarters, I can't imagine you'd ever develop a new propensity to do so. Like, I just don't see how that would happen. Like you've talked about, you know, travel and all that sort of stuff. Like these meetings that are taking place uh, where historically would be one, you know, face-to-face -face you're, you're doing over Zoom. You know, if, if you didn't pay for it over the last two quarters, why, why would you when the world goes back to, uh, whether it be a new normal or closer to normal, uh, whatever that may be, like, why, why would you ever... Um, and yeah, similarly, I mean, we get Google Meet and I find the product to be just as easy to use. So it's, it's a little easier for us than, than paying for Zoom. So I definitely am sympathetic to that argument. Um, you know, the stats pricing in a ton of growth and I have a hard time grasping a path for much more growth from here, though the obvious caveat there being um, certain companies, you know, when they have a huge windfall like this and they have an opportunity to invest, they could extend their business into new lines that you just don't consider for them. And if they could deepen their role in workflow, in uh, communication and connectivity within businesses, there's, there, there, there could be more growth than, you know, kind of reaches my mind. So those, those are my thoughts on, on some of those points. I wonder how, uh, John, I know you've had some involvement with, creating a Slack for the MOI community and have been uh, on, you, you know, using Slacks in various contexts. I'm curious how you've, how you've seen behavior evolve and some of these thoughts, uh, what, what you'd think about them. Yeah, we've tried Slack, um, you know, a few times and it never really took off. So, you know, we tried it within the MOI community, not really within a, a company per se, so it wasn't mandated that people had to be on Slack or anything like that. And um, it didn't really catch on because I feel like it was some new thing that 
people would have had to add to their daily routine. And actually, um, WhatsApp has worked much better. You know, for example, for our Idea Week St. Moritz, we have a WhatsApp group that's really active uh, still, you know, more than six months after the event. So Slack is a tough one. The thing about Slack, though, is when I did use it regularly, I could see a lot of innovation and improvement, kind of constant features being added and, and, and so forth, which I'm not seeing as much with, let's say, a Dropbox, uh, which I also use as part of uh, MOI. And, you know, you talked about the acquisition that Dropbox has made and kind of um, how their future might be different from what it is today. And that, I think for a Dropbox, that might be kind of the crux is if they succeed in having people actually use it for something other than just a disk drive in the cloud. Uh, That's a big challenge. You know, I'll say um, we also use MailChimp. And with MailChimp, it's the same thing. I mean, we have not evolved how we use MailChimp in five plus years. It just seems like the product is kind of stuck and they kind of have some little innovations, but nothing that would really compel us to broaden our use of the product. And Dropbox has been in that category. And so that's, I think, the big challenge for them. You know, one other thing you mentioned, Elliot, on, on Slack is if it's just chat, it's really not that value added. And I totally agree. And actually, the reason why we're not using Slack more within MOI of the company is that it felt like mostly chat. And what I was looking for is really something that can be part of business processes that are repeatable. You know, I don't want to have to chat with a freelancer. I want to be able to spec out a process and have it as projects and tasks. And so instead of actually using a ton of um, Slack, we're using Asana much more. And Asana has been great. That's, by the way, another company that I think has filed uh, an S1. So you would never give up uh, your, your email function in favor of something like Slack, right, John? Oh, never. No, no. And actually, you know, what's funny is I mean, email is king, that's for sure. Email is almost like an inbox, like a task box for me. And Elliot, you know, you you mentioned a Substack. And, you know, I've kind of gone crazy on signing up for Substacks lately. And all of a sudden, my inbox gets swamped with Substacks. And now I saw that Feedly, where basically, I think they started out with kind of RSS feeds that you would uh, group and 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 combine. Yeah, now they really actually, emerged after Google killed Reader. That's where I had done my RSS reading. Yeah, and actually Feedly now allows you to receive your Substacks in Feedly instead of email. So Feedly will give you an email address that you can use on Substack, and then they'll make it really nice so you don't get all this stuff in your email inbox. You can just get it through Feedly. That's so interesting. I didn't even know Feedly was doing that. And I've been using Feedly like for quite a while now. I haven't done as much RSS because I've definitely used uh, Twitter for most of my curation and finding content and discovery and all that. I mean, you give a lot of good insights. I, I think my response on Dropbox would be that they have done some innovative things. But for the most part, the big problem and the big opportunity they have is like Dropbox by nature, by virtue of its product, is designed to work seamlessly in the background. So you're not using Dropbox. 
uh, you're just using another folder on your computer. So that's like the beauty of it, the simplicity that you don't have to deal and see it. Um, and they've had to do things to like proactively get you to kind of bring it more to the surface. So like one of the interesting integrations that I've found recently that I use quite a bit now is to create Google Docs or, or um, you know, natively within Dropbox. I, it's actually quicker to create it from Dropbox's homepage than it is from uh, the Gmail homepage. And then you could assign it to a Dropbox folder. So it's made my organization a little simpler. Stuff like that. I mean, it's small, but I think those sorts of things are going on. But yeah, I think I think you've had really sharp insights on every single one of these pieces of software. And I, you know, I know and I appreciate you have a very cool lens on kind of testing these things all out, both internally and with the uh, broader community. Um, I do think like WhatsApp has been huge for us. Like that's how we organized, uh, you know, this whole uh, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I'll just add, Elliot, on on Dropbox is we did actually use Box before we used Dropbox. And uh, so we did move, we, we migrated everything to Dropbox, um, mainly because Dropbox on the pricing was just much better versus Box. And, and I, I also like the, the user experience uh, better. So Box at some point kind of went astray, I would say. No, yeah, and I think Box is really, I mean, they just try to target really large enterprises, built a good sales force for it, and tried to price very aggressively, build in a few integrations and whatnot. And by and large, I think, you know, eventually uh, Dropbox is going to eat their lunch where they're strong, but Dropbox had been far more focused on um, winning with kind of like self-sign-on, really light touch, viral product um, without doing the same things. Um, I think like a real sign that they're going to start eating their lunch was the University of Michigan migrating entirely from Box to Dropbox. So like for certain kinds of businesses it, uh, and, and you know, universities, not a business per se, but for certain types of organizations, it makes a lot more sense to work with someone that's got a better, more robust product. I think Dropbox could do it all uh, at a lower cost than Box. I think that's part of what, what you see in the pricing because they've invested a lot in building their own infrastructure for storage for files that aren't used frequently. They're able to put in cold storage, which I think they've claimed basically is kind of the lowest cost way to do it in the industry. They, they formerly had been on AWS. So that's part of why their IPO was just put off so long. You know, I think more generally it was the kind of company that came public like well past its kind of peak hype phase. And, you know, in contrast, something like Slack came public right in the middle of its peak hype phase. And I think these companies kind of, you know, should think about how to time that sort of stuff and how to time where their where their futures going and what it looks like. Um, I didn't realize Asana was was thinking of coming public. That would be an interesting one to take a look at when the time comes. But a really good friend of mine, Barton Huber, who's best tech guy that I know anywhere at um, Wheats in in Omaha with, with Wally, and, and he was talking to me about Box and Dropbox and the difference, and and, and they own Box. And it, and it sounds like even in both cases, but Box in particular, it kind of backed off some sales and marketing and becoming a little more of a niche business and maybe Dropbox is doing the same. But you brought up a really good point, Elliot, earlier. And, you know, I've kind of been laughing about it around here. But Woe is the company that that flips from not profitable to profitable because at that point you can value it. And, you know, Dropbox and Box have gone through that. The stocks have not done that well. Dropbox and, and box trade at, you know, if you look at a couple of three years and if you assume they're going to grow sales kind of at that, you know, 12 to 17 or 18% rate, which 
in the world of software is terrible, but in the world of real businesses is terrific. You can get your mind around these valuations. So if you can get your mind around, you know, these things having a a place in the world of Microsoft, for example, because, you know, these are big markets, you're getting to where you've had to go through some pain with the stock prices, but, you know, some of these things may now be interesting. You you take a Slack or you take the recent database IPO that Berkshire owns a little bit of, Snow. I mean, good Lord, $70 billion market cap on $500 million in revenues. You're buying some of these SaaS businesses and some of these database businesses where everything has to go right. And the minute something goes wrong, and it could be simply a diminution of your growth rate, which you saw at Dropbox, and you've seen it box, where especially if you're now showing some level of real margin structure and profitability, you wind up as a shareholder, you know, suffering mightily, even though the businesses are transitioning into real businesses and, you know, kind of growing into the, 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 the real margin structure that, that may or may not be durable. It's interesting, you know, woe to the company that, that becomes profitable when you're awarded these insane valuations. That is it exactly. That's where I'm at with these things. You know, it's like damned these companies who are actually earning cash flow. You know, the, there's nothing worse than being like a, a decent grower with with free cash flow right now, um, without being at your target uh, free cash flow margins. Right? I mean, that's what's being effectively not just not rewarded, but I feel like it's being punished in the market. That a lot of these uh, growth investors are like, well. Why don't they make less money and invest more for growth sort of thing? You know, why isn't their opportunity bigger? Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's been hard, uh, you know, and that, that's to my benefit because that's the, those are kind of like my hunting grounds. That's where I like to look for opportunities, exactly those kind of companies. To me, that's the definition of GARP, right? It's where, you know, neither a, a, a tried and true value investor nor a, uh, you know, enthusiastic growth investor could find exactly what they're looking for. So yeah, the, you, you hit the nail on the head there. You know, if Box and Dropbox can make the transition to selling into large enterprises, you know, your Fortune 5000 type businesses, you know, going up head to head against the IBMs and have success at, you know, not far from current prices, they may be really interesting investments. They, they really may. You know, yep, Elliot, exactly. uh, you know, when, when you were talking about this, a company that came to mind was uh, IAC Interactive Corp. You know, it feels like they got a bunch of these businesses in their IAC is my portfolio. favorite, or one of my favorites, I should say. I like them all. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, if you look at their companies, they're at these lowly multiples and then similar businesses uh, outside of that portfolio sometimes trade at huge multiples. Yeah, I've been actually just over the last couple of weeks talking with some of my friends and pointing out how like, I think Vimeo alone could, you know, were it public, right? Um, I think it would account for at least half of IAC's entire market cap. And the rationale is quite simple. They're growing faster than a lot of these similar SaaS companies. So you look at a stock like HubSpot, you take HubSpot's multiple, apply it to the ARR that Vimeo is generating, and they're half of IAC's market cap right there. Um, I don't see why the market would see it any differently. It's actually growing faster than hubs. You know, it's putting up upwards of 40% growth. They said just last week they continue to do, um, they think they're confident they could do 30% plus growth next year on these really tough COVID-induced comps. Um, you know, that's that's a beautiful business. And then Angie, I mean, they're like the stepchild of all growth investing. Um, 
you know, they, they, that's one of the companies I was very much thinking about when I was saying these, these poor old, uh, they actually make money and grow near 20%, but get no love kind of companies. Um, you know, you look at where that's trading on a price to sales basis and what the market's implying about its growth curve and its out year margins. And it's like, they're already delivering on what you'd hope for in their out year margins. They're trading at like 3.6 times trailing sales. And I mean, obviously COVID changes their growth trajectory, but they should be able to still put up, you know, somewhere uh, 10% or so growth on the full year, if not more. And, you know, they're getting absolutely no love. And yeah, they, they also have like this big opportunity with fixed price to kind of change their business and create something so much better and remove a lot of friction and increase their TAM. You know, these, these are the kind of areas that I'm, that I'm really looking at. You know, there's a, in the small cap space, there's a, a pair of companies that I think also fits the bill uh, kind of in the freelance uh, arena. And we've used both at MOI, uh, Fiverr versus Upwork. So Fiverr has $100 million in trailing revenue and a $4.4 billion market cap. Upwork has three hundred plus million in revenue and a one point eight billion market cap. So you've got forty four times sales versus just about six. And we actually we've used both. Fiverr is kind of for little jobs that are well defined. You're going to spend, you know, it's called Fiverr because everything was five bucks originally. Now you know they kind of add some things so you can spend between five and let's say fifty bucks and well-defined things like our, you know, podcast logo or something like that. Whereas Upwork, you can actually hire people to be quasi full-time employees and Upwork will handle all the paperwork. So we've got, um, you know, some full-time people in the Philippines never having to worry about any paperwork and that's recurring revenue to Upwork. And so we're spending like 10 to 20 times X on Upwork versus on Fiverr and that's not going to change you know, interesting little uh, example of exactly what you were talking about. This is great. You've given me the prompt I've needed to work on these companies. I've had great experiences with Upwork. We have a chocolate store and used a videographer and copywriter from Upwork and uh, web developers to build our online store. And, you know, all of it was just a phenomenal experience. I didn't realize that they also do some of these recurring uh, kind of placements. Um, you know, I think it's just such an easy to use platform, so efficient. Uh, you could vet the quality of the work with verified reviews, which I think is extremely important. Um, so I only know it as a customer. I don't know it as a business. I haven't read the S1 or anything like that and couldn't be happier as a customer. I haven't had a bad experience on it yet. So that's that's really interesting to me. I, I definitely should. I, I didn't realize like where these were in the market. Um God, I wish I were looking at this in like March or April, but um, I mean, I guess you can say that about a lot of things, but um, this this looks like something I should really be uh, right in my wheelhouse, so to speak. Yeah, well, for you, sure. You've given me the prompt and I'm kind of kidding here, but I'm not. I'm sitting here thinking as you guys are talking about my Dropbox subscription that I've had for probably 15 years. A friend of mine had sent me some large PDF files and at a point, I guess I exceeded the two free gigabytes and, you know, now I'm paying monthly, whatever I'm paying. And I bet you I'm into that, that Dropbox archive no more than once a year. I know I've downloaded some family pictures and some videos that I've taken, some, some youth and middle school football games. And I'm wondering, hell, I've already got OneDrive, Teams and all that. 
why am I paying Dropbox? So now I've got to weigh the inertia of whether I want to transition a handful of files that I never read and access. Man, here I was thinking that you were going to say you're going to start researching the stock and maybe we get a new no. shareholder on board. No, and trying, then we're going to end up with a churned user. No, I'm trying to save myself five bucks a month. <laughs> Can't blame you. Can't blame you. But I thought we might have a new shareholder instead of a churned user on our hands. <laughs> maybe it's not even Dropbox. If you use it that little, you know, it could be anything. No, that's the truth. I've, I've got <laughs> countless of those monthly recurring charges of things that I've signed up for that I know I'm not using. So you, you guys may have just given me the best raise I've ever received in my life. I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, so spend it on Fiverr, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, it's been a terrific episode. Thank you so much. Um, you know, you, you both mentioned wine, and maybe we can cover that in an upcoming uh, week. That would be uh, really interesting as well. We do it on yes, a, instead of an audio, we'll do a Zoom video and we'll imbibe a little as we, as we talk. <laughs> yeah, that that's might have to be, to. that's negotiable. <laughs> Sounds good. Yes, as I expected. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. We look forward to having you with us next week when uh, Phil Ordway will be back uh, in the mix as well. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.